Okay, let's, let's open up our Bibles again. Uh, Numbers 22. We will cover three chapters tonight. Now, I, I'm, I'm, really, I'm not trying to push you all. I know some are thinking, wow, we were going from one chapter, and then and it seems like it's been two every, the last several Wednesdays, and now all of a sudden, three tonight? How many next week? Well, maybe six or seven. I don't know. But, um, but this is all a package deal. And actually, I'll tell you all, Numbers 22 through 25 is really a package deal, but I'm going to save 25 for Sunday morning intentionally. You'll, you'll find out why tonight. But... Uh, numbers 22, 23, 24, it's, it's all one flow, and it's important, I think, that we take it together. Romans 13, verse 11, says, It is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And, and that's kind of a, a no-duh statement, kind of obvious. I'm closer to being saved today than I was yesterday. Yeah, but, but there's so much encouragement and hope in that that we're a step closer. We are nearer the return of Jesus. We are nearer to hearing his sweet voice say, come up here and away we go and we will be home with every passing day. Every hour, every minute, that is a true statement. Salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And for those who say, yeah, but I don't know enough about salvation, it kind of scares me. It's a little nebulous. Hey, just know it'll be so much better than anything we have now. I mean, it, we will be immediately transported into the most perfect scenario, the most perfect situation, an eternal situation, and we may not fully understand it on this side of heaven, but when we are in the presence of Jesus, I know from reading scripture, it, it's, it's almost beyond comprehension how wonderful it will be when all the tears are wiped away and all striving shall cease and all is good and right with the Lord. So every passing day, we're getting closer and closer and closer. Don't miss it. That's what's happening with Israel. Coming to the, they're already now beyond really the edge of the wilderness. They've come to the border of the promised land. They couldn't go straight in because the Edomites were a pain in the neck. So now they've had to go around, but they are en route and they are skirting the promised land and they're gonna head up and cross the Jordan eventually and go right into the land. Book of Joshua tells that part of the story. There are a few more things the Lord wants us to know before they get into the land, but man, they are close. They are close, just as we are. So keep that in mind, even as we've been talking about this study through numbers. Hashtag in the wilderness. Well, guess what? We're almost out. In our study and in reality, we are almost out of the wilderness. Keep hope. Father, I pray tonight as we study your word that your spirit would truly uh, just saturate us with truth and give us understanding and comprehension, Father, that we not be overwhelmed, but we really take in all that you have for us, all that you've prepared and I pray that you will send us out of here encouraged and built up and even stronger for these last few days or weeks or months or years. Lord, that's in your hands, but for our part, we just want to be ready. So ready us, Spirit of the living God, tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Numbers 22, verse 1, Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab. If you know anything about Moab, that's going to be on the uh, eastern side of the Jordan River that is today mid-Jordan. 
So you've got Ammon, Moab, Edom makes up the region that today is Jordan. So they're in the plains of Moab. See where they've already now moved out of the wilderness and they're coming up north and they're getting, they're across literally, well, it says uh, they camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. So they're getting very, very close here. Now, Balak, the son of Zippor, saw that all Israel had, saw what all Israel, or, or all that Israel had done to the Amorites. He saw the mess that they made of the Amorites, how they took them down, took them out. Verse 3, so Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous. And Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, now this horde will lick us up or lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab at that time. Last week we saw Israel make this truly victorious march to the plains of Moab. And on their way there, man, they, they uh, confronted Edom. They came back on around and they conquered the Amorites. Well, the Amorites had conquered the Moabites. So the Moabites are shaking in their sandals because these people just conquered the people who conquered us. And Israel bowled over big King Og of Bashan. And so to the Moabites, they're watching Israel march and thinking this people are divinely unstoppable. Thing is, and it's interesting, King Balak and Moab really had nothing to fear. Nothing to fear at all. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9, Moses later reveals, The Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab. Do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the sons of Lot as a possession. So just leave Moab alone. God already told Moses that. Israel was no threat to Moab. But we see words like fear and dread. And you know what? When you are not walking with the Lord... That's your option because you don't know the will of the Lord. So you're left with guessing, which brings about fear, which brings about dread. And that's where Balak and the Moabites are. Even though God has already told Moses, you're not going to deal with them. Don't worry about them. Just go right on by. Leave them alone. You're not to take that land. They're scared to death. And so to make matters worse, what Balak, king of Moab, does is he decides to see if he can purchase some prophetic favor. Verse 5. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river. Now, this is Balaam would be coming out of an, a region northern Syria today. So further up in the north, the river is the Euphrates River, where Pethor, this, this city, and Pethor literally means city on the river. So it's right there on the Euphrates, and that's where this Balaam is from. In the land of the sons of his people, call him, saying, Behold, a people have come out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come. Curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Really? There's only one who I know is able to bless and to curse and does it effectively, and that's obviously the Lord. It's not Balaam, but he's obviously an impressive seer in the region, at least to the pagans around there. So the elders of Moab, verse 7, and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam, and they repeated Balak's words to him. And he said to them, 
spend the night here, and I will bring word back to you as the Lord may speak to me. And the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. Enter Balaam. Balaam's son of Beor. Uh, his name literally means, Balaam means not of the people. Not of the people. And Beor means burning. He is not of the people, this son of burning. It's not the kind of name you really want for someone that you're about to you know, get in league with. Someone you're going to try to trust for prophetic utterance. And what follows now, the rest of these three chapters, is some of the most intriguing stuff in the Hebrew Scriptures. What it will remind you is that, first of all, that while the Older Testament focuses on Israel as God's people and God's interaction with Israel, he's still interacting with others. There's still, there are things going on in the world that God is dealing with. This Balaam, though he is not an Israelite, he is not among the Hebrew people, Balaam yet knows Yahweh. How do you know that? Well, it, it says there in verse 8 that he said, I will bring word back to you as the Lord may speak to me, as Yahweh may speak to me. So he's aware of the Lord, and apparently the Lord had spoken to him before. And this is the one that, that at least Balaam is, is looking to. Now, I think Balak probably isn't. Balak is probably looking to a different God. But everyone knows, hey, Balaam is the seer for hire. And we can pay him and, and get a word. And so, again, the Lord interacts not just with Israel, but with many others. But the Hebrew scriptures are primarily about God and his chosen people. So we don't get a whole lot of what's going on with others. Just don't forget it's taking place. It reminds me of what John said to Jesus. Mark chapter 9, verse 38, he said, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Jesus said, do not hinder him, for there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Rick's opinion, I think the church spends way too much time worrying about the church. But they don't do it the way we do it. And they're way off over there. And how can we align ourselves? I mean, even support them in any... Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. You focus on Jesus. Let's keep our minds where they need to be. Let's keep our intent on the gospel of Jesus Christ and fixing our eyes on Jesus. And I'll tell you what, here's a, here's a good way to think about it. When we have that down pat and we are really good at just fixing our eyes on Jesus and preaching the gospel, then we can talk about what other people are doing. But until we have this relationship with Jesus as the primary in our lives, I think we just need to let the rest alone. And, and that's not to be blind to frauds. It's just don't worry about them. Don't worry about the frauds. You follow Jesus. God's got this. He's got his church. He will take care of the frauds. Now, I realize there are some, like apologists and others, who it, it really is their calling to expose heathenism and paganism and, and lies and deceit and false teaching. I get that, and, and good for them, and God bless them. But for me, I just want to keep my eyes on Jesus. Let's do that. I just don't have time to worry about all of the frauds that are out there. And I don't have time to worry about the people who I really don't know what they're doing, but they're not doing it exactly like we are. Hey, are they preaching Jesus? Are people getting saved in the name of Jesus? Then let it be. Balaam will also remind us 
that some people actually hear God yet choose to be self-serving. Some do hear God. Some do even speak words of God, and yet they're selfish and self-centered. And that's Balaam in this whole story. What's amazing is what the Bible has to say about him. The Bible says, Micah chapter 6, verse 5, my people remember now what Balak king of Moses uh, of Moab <laughs> counseled and what Balaam son of Beor answered him. Remember what Balaam said, the Bible says. I'll, I'll finish that verse in just a second. Now, understand, obviously, that it is not, we are not called to hear God and then serve ourselves. That's not the way it is to be with us. That's not the way of Yahweh. Ephesians chapter four, verse 14 says, no, we're no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So that's, that's our call, to hear the Lord and to speak the words of the Lord and to be intent on the Lord. Balaam is a problematic, peddling prophet. He, he's a, a skeevy, self-indulgent seer. This Balaam is so about himself and what he can get out of it. And yet, you know what's amazing in the Bible? There's more said about Balaam than there is about Mary. There's more spoken about Balaam than any one of the apostles. You hear more about him. His name appears in the Bible 60 times. 60 times. He's, he's mentioned. He's called out. He shows up, his name at least, he's referred to in eight different books. In the Hebrew Scriptures, here in Numbers, again in Deuteronomy, in Joshua, in Nehemiah, in Micah, where the Lord again says to Israel through Micah, remember what Balaam son of Beor said, from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Remember what Balaam prophesied. But Lord, Balaam's a slime ball. Yeah, he is. But he spoke the truth when I told him to. And you'll see that tonight. That's what makes it so fascinating to me, is even a slime ball can speak the truth, which gives me great hope. <laughs> Peter, Jude, and Jesus also call him out in the Newer Testament. So you've got Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. You've got Nehemiah, Micah. Then you have Second Peter, Jude, and Revelation. And he's mentioned in all these books. In the New Testament, he's called out, not, not because his words were false, Balaam's words, as we read them tonight, are completely true. He's not a false prophet because his words are false. He's a false prophet because his heart was false, which again makes him such an interesting character in the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. Speaking of false prophets, in the last days, by the way, it describes them this way, forsaking the right way they've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, Mr. Not-of-the-people, son of burning, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression, a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. So we'll hear that story. Jude writes in verse 11, Woe to them, those same false prophets, for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. And then, of course, Jesus, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, says to the church at Pergamos, 
I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, if you're taking notes, there's our outline. We have a three-part outline that we're going to use to kind of follow through tonight, and it is the way of Balaam, it is the error of Balaam, and it is number three, the teaching of Balaam. So the way, the error, and the teaching of Balaam, and that'll carry us through our study the rest of the time tonight. So in verse 9, now Balaam says, stay with me, I'll go talk to the Lord about this request of yours. Verse 9, when God came to Balaam, or then God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent word to me. Behold, there's a people who came out of Egypt. And they cover the surface of the land. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I'm able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, note this, do not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. (laughs) Now, if you had seen the journey, as many of us have now, through the wilderness, you might not think they were blessed. But truly they were. And they are So Balaam arose in the morning, verse 13, and said to Balak's leaders, go back to your land, for the Lord, that is Yahweh, has refused to let me go with you. The leaders of Moab arose and went back to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak again sent leaders, more numerous and more distinguished than the former. They came to Balaam and they said to him, thus Balak, the son of Zippor, says, let nothing, I beg you, hinder you from coming to me. For I will indeed honor you richly. That is, I got, some, I got some big bucks to pay. I'll pay for this. I'll honor you richly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Please come then. Curse this people for me. Balaam replied to the servants of Balak. Now watch this. Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, hint, hint, wink, wink, I could do nothing, either small or great, contrary to the command of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord my God. I I have to follow him, (laughs) even if you had all kinds of money (laughs) to pay me. Even if you had riches and wealth throughout your house that you could give me, you know. Verse 19, now please, you also stay here tonight, and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. Wait a minute, Balaam? God already said no. Yeah, but I'm going to go back and ask him again. I need a second opinion. Ever do that with the Lord? Ever say, well, okay, I, I, I get it that you're, you're saying no, but, but Lord, really, I, I just, I got to check this out. Maybe there's another answer. Or there's another way we can, hey, there's more than one way to skin a cat. We have a cat on our property right now. I wouldn't mind skinning, but that's a different topic. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them, but only the word which I speak you shall, or to you, you shall do. So Balaam arose in the morning, his eyes no doubt glittering with green. He arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the leaders of Moab. This is the way of Balaam. So number one, the way of Balaam. What is the way of Balaam? Greed. He's a peddler. It's greed. It's using the gift. And he has a gift. He's a seer. He's hearing the Lord. He will bring some remarkable prophecy. He's using the gift for pay, for money, for, for you know, riches and wealth. And, and, and he's toying with them for treasure. Again, wink, wink, hint, hint. Even if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, he's angling for the big payoff. 
He's wanting him to, you know, cough it up, whatever it takes to get his commission. And again, Peter describes the way of Balaam as 2 Peter 2.15, he who loves the wages of unrighteousness. That describes him. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus said, listen to this, no one can serve two masters. Yeah, yeah, Rick, we've heard that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Listen to what Jesus says. No one, which in the Greek language means no one. <laughs> no one can serve two masters. You cannot do it. He says either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And the word wealth there is mammon, which is unrighteous wealth, worldly wealth. You can't pursue that and pursue him. It won't work. You're going to get counterbalanced and you're going to get thrown off and it's going to change you. I don't know why, and I, I speak directly to my own heart in this as well as to the rest of us, but I do not know why we still believe we can serve both. We do in the church, in the world. People still believe, Christians believe, I can serve God and go make a buck. I'm not talking about God's provision for you. I'm not talking about your profession or the way God has chosen to provide for you and your family. I'm talking about the pursuit of that. You cannot pursue that, pursue the big money and God at the same time. It's gonna be one or the other. You will unquestionably, Jesus says, serve the one you love. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. It's what we said before we began. The worth and value of Jesus is inestimable. You cannot achieve, attain, or acquire anything in this world that even compares or comes close to who Jesus is. 2 Corinthians 2.17 says very clearly, Paul says, we are not like the many peddling the word of God. See, Balaam's a peddler of prophecy. Pay up and I'll prophesy and you'll be pleased with what you hear. That's kind of his M.O., and that's not us, and that is not the church, and that's not what we're to be about. And that's why sometimes I find it difficult, and I'm just being brutally honest, I find it difficult wandering into a Christian bookstore. Because so much is being sold, and I know there's good stuff there. I get it. But there is so much of the simplicity of the gospel that is set aside in favor of all this buying and purchasing and, and money being made we're not like the many peddling the word of God. As from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. That's our simple calling. Now, Paul also warns that in the last days, even the Bible will be bought and sold for a price. Titus chapter 1, verse 10, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach. Why? For the sake of sordid gain. And that's Balaam's problem. Balaam, the peddling prophet, he appears on the surface to be subjected to God, but his heart is greedy. His heart is after the cold, hard cash. 
And we understand that because later Peter defines that for us and the Bible makes it clear as his name comes up again and again. And by the way, note this, that is what turned the heart of Jesus. That's what turned the heart of Judas long before he betrayed Jesus. It was greed. It was the way of Balaam that drew the heart of Judas. John tells us this. John chapter 12, verse 6. And, and by the way, I just want to dispel a myth of the, the poor Judas myth that's out there. Poor Judas, you know, he really didn't have a choice in this. He was kind of set up, and I don't think he really wanted to betray Jesus. You know, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says very clearly, John chapter 12, verse 6, he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Throughout the three-year ministry of Jesus, Judas is dipping into the box and taking for himself. And the whole issue behind the betrayal was he was running out of options to make money off this Messiah. Maybe if I betray him, I can cash in, finally, the big bucks. What was Judas' big haul for betrayal? 30 shekels of silver. It was about the money. And then the guilt was so great, and it wasn't, it wasn't a guilt that caused him to repent. It wasn't the, the sorrow, uh, it wasn't godly sorrow, it was worldly sorrow, as Paul describes it. Worldly sorrow was so great, he took that money that he had made, that he had acquired by betraying Jesus, threw it into the temple, ran out to the Hinnom Valley, and hung himself, spilling his guts out on the ground. That's what Acts chapter 1 tells us. It's a brutal picture. The chief priest took that blood money, you may recall the story. They bought that field, and they called it Keldama, the field of blood. And that was the end result of the greed of Judas, which is just Judas following the way of Balaam. Well, verse 22 tells us, but God was angry because he was going. Wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. Lord, you told him to go. Yeah, but the Lord had already previously said No. No, do not go with them. So why does God allow him to go? Because Balaam forces the issue. And you know what? He'll do that with you and with me. We push the issue. But God, I really want to do this. Okay. Go ahead. But understand, you are opposed to my will. When we seek the Lord and we get clear answer, but we want to do it our way, God rarely is going to step in your way and stop you. He's going to let you walk it out. And that's exactly what's happening with Balaam. He's going to walk it out. Even though God said no, Balaam pushes. In fact, back in verse 19 again, remember what he said, I'll find out what else the Lord will speak to me. What else? No, no, no. He already said no. But Balaam doesn't like the answer, wants to get a second opinion, and so off he goes. The worst thing in the world... I am discovering in my short life is to get what I want. It's to get my way. The old Burger King commercial from years ago, have it your way. Have it your way. Well, I don't care how they make it at Burger King, it's still nasty, but that's, that's not the point. Have it your way. It's, it's this, boy, it feeds the flesh, doesn't it? Your way, your rights. I have the right to this, that, and the other. What about what I want? Hey, when I chase down what I want, it doesn't tend to end well. But when I follow what the Lord has for me, that's, that's a different thing. But here's Balaam, and even the fraudulent have a free will. They can choose to follow God, or they can choose to follow their greed. 
The Lord allows the choice. It doesn't mean he approves of it, but he does allow it. And so God was angry because he was going. And note this, the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, (laughs) she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right hand or the left. Do you see what God's doing here? God said, no. And Balaam said, go. God said, all right. And as Balaam goes, he's still trying to stop him. Look, this is not the way you want to go. I said, no. I said, stop, turn back. The angel of the Lord is there doing it. And when the donkey saw, verse 27, the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. I love this story. (laughs) And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? I don't know if that's how she sounded. I'm just trying here. And Balaam said to the donkey, weirdest verse in the Bible right there. (laughs) Excuse me? If I'm riding a donkey and the donkey turns and says, hey, Rick, what are you doing? I'm off the donkey and I am running for my life. Balaam's like, well, let's talk about this. I mean, it's obvious who the brains of the operation are, is. My goodness, Balaam says to the donkey, because you have made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. Amazing. The donkey said to Balaam, so now they're having a conversation. Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, no. (laughs) This is just fantastic. Not only does Balaam converse with his donkey, but his donkey outreasons him. Unbelievable. (laughs) Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I've come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. Note that. Your way was contrary to me. What way was he going? The way of Balaam the greedy way. That's not what I have for you. It is not what I want for you, says the angel of the Lord. But the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, I would surely have killed you just now and let her live. Because the donkey's the only smart one. I added that. Verse 34, Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. For I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. If it's displeasing, haven't we already settled that issue? Goodness sakes. I got to tell you, and I I told Deb this earlier, I so wish I was teaching this to you in the King James because I could have so much fun with this donkey. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the puns would be nonstop, but but that's all right. We'll we'll let that go. But it's, uh, it's incredible. He says, if it's displeasing to you, 
I'll turn back. God already said it was. And why does Balaam say, I've sinned? You might say, oh, well, look, he's, he's repentant. No, he's not. He's not. He says, I've sinned because he's caught going his own way. He says, I've sinned because he whacked his donkey, not because he was acting against the will of God. He's not concerned with that. He just feels bad because he had the beast. Well, I guess I've sinned. This is no confession, my friends. Verse 35, but the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. Who is this angel of the Lord? <laughs> the Sunday school answer is usually the right one. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Now that, I, 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 that is my opinion. That's my studied opinion. The Malachi Yahweh, when you see the appearance of the, not an angel of the Lord, notice that. There's a definite article. The angel of the Lord. The unique, the only. An angel here is not like angel as in wings. This is messenger, malach is the word in Hebrew. So the Malach Yahweh, we've seen him before. He showed up. He spoke to Abraham. Remember what Jesus said about that in John chapter 8? Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham saw me. How can this be? The, the Pharisees shouted at Jesus, and he replied, hey, before Abraham was born, I am. So even if you read this and you go, well, I don't think the angel of the Lord could possibly be a pre-incarnate Jesus, you need to at least accept that it could be. Because Jesus is eternal, same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, I personally think when we see the angel of the Lord with that definite article, the angel, the Malach Yahweh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, we are absolutely seeing Jesus. And note this, he has a drawn sword. I find that fascinating. It's in Revelation chapter 1 that John describes him as a sword of the word coming out of his mouth. And in this picture, he's got the drawn sword. You're going to see him with a drawn sword meeting Joshua in Joshua chapter 5 as the captain of the Lord's host. The same pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. I just don't know if I can buy that. Again, you don't have to buy that, but you at least need to accept that Jesus could show up prior to his first coming because he has always been. Because as God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three equal, equal and yet three distinct personalities of the Trinity, Jesus has always been. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but my opinion is this is, again, a pre-incarnate Jesus, what, what I like to call Jesus B.C., Jesus before Christ, before he came in the person of Messiah, to be Israel's Messiah and ours as well. And remember that Jesus himself here, he is calling, he is speaking with the authority of God. You will speak only what I will tell you. No angel would dare say that. Only the Lord has that kind of authority. And so this angel of the Lord is speaking with the authority of God. And remember that Jesus himself is the one who calls out Balaam in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, which we'll see again in a minute. Also remember that up on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter's there and he sees Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and Peter gets all excited and says, let's build tabernacles for all three of you. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. And the Shekinah glory of God, that glory cloud appears in the sky, and out of the cloud comes the voice, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to all three of them if you like. Listen to him. 
you listen to him. Not Moses the lawgiver, not Elijah the prophet, but Jesus Christ the son. You listen to him, he's the one with the authority. So yes, I believe that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Verse 36, when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the Arnon border. The Arnon is the river that divides Moab and Ammon. So again, thinking about Jordan, Ammon, like Ammon, Jordan in the north, Moab in the middle, Edom in the south. Between Moab and Ammon is this Arnon River. And he says, uh, I'll, I'll, Balak went out to meet him there at the extreme end of the border. And then verse 37, Balak said to Balaam, did I not urgently send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I really unable to honor you? And so Balaam said to Balak, okay, you got to see my donkey. <laughs> no, he doesn't say that. But if it's so he didn't mention the donkey incident at all. He just says, behold, I've come now to you. Am I able to speak anything at all? Um, looking over his shoulder, I can imagine the word that God puts in my mouth, that I shall speak. And Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath Huzot, which means city on the outskirts. That's on the outskirts of Moab. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent some to Balaam and the leaders who were with him. This is all kind of pagan sacrifice. Verse 41, then it came about in the morning that Balak took Balaam and brought him to the high places of Baal. We say Baal, but if you're speaking in Hebrew, you'd say Baal. And he saw from there a portion or the end of the camp of Israel, a portion of the people. You can see some of them from this high place where they're located. And now in chapter 23, we begin to see the error of Balaam. So that whole story gives us a sense of the way of Balaam, the way of greed, peddling the word of God for personal profit. He's a prophet for profit, you could say. And so now the error of Balaam. What's the error of Balaam? It is attempting to curse that which God has blessed. Cursing the blessed is the error of Balaam. Follow this through. Verse 1. Then Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars for me here and prepare seven bills, uh, bulls and seven rams for me here. Just note this, obviously seven is a huge number, very important number in the Hebrew mindset and in the Older Testament. And we see, you know, the seven feasts throughout the year, and we see in the seventh month of the year all the feasts that happen there, and we see on the seventh day of the Sabbath, and you can go on and on finding all the sevens. So that's unique here, but it's also something that Babylonian paganism did. They would offer up seven bulls. They would offer up seven altars, and that's, that's unique. God had one altar, and all the sacrifices were there. Here you see seven altars, probably to seven different gods. So they're offering sacrifice to all these pagan gods, seven bulls, seven rams. Balak did just as Balaam had spoken, verse 2. Balak and Balaam offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. <laughs> Balak and Balaam. I mean, what are the, who, these are great names. Balak and Balaam, these bloviating blowhards. I think we could say that. <laughs> And then Balaam said to Balak, verse 3, stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps Yahweh will come to meet me and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a bare hill. Now, just so you know, um, Balaam is a seer in that day called a baru, B-A-R-U, a baru. And the baru was kind of a prophet priest of 
of heathenism, of, of pagan idolatry. And what they would do is they actually would give sacrifice and then they'd take the entrails or they would take some of the organs of the animal and they would go and read them and come up with their prophetic word. And that's probably what Balaam is doing here when he goes off to this bare hill is he probably takes a little bit of the guts and he's out there kind of going, hmm, hmm, what does this say? What does this mean? But verse 4 tells us, now God met Balaam and he said to him, that is, Balaam said to God, I've set up the seven altars, and I've offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. <laughs> then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and you shall speak thus. Now, I want you to just note that. He'll say it again. The Lord puts a word in his mouth. So God is now telling this, this Balaam, You're going to speak exactly what I say. And he literally puts that word into Balaam's mouth to return and speak exactly so he returned to him, verse 6. And behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, he and all the leaders of Moab. And he, Balaam, took up his discourse and he said, and there are going to be five discourses of Balaam. Here's the first. From Aram, Balak has brought me. Aram is Syria. Moab's king from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. And you hear him clearing his throat and preparing for this cursing, this denouncing. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? As I see him from the top of the rocks, as I look at him from the hills, behold, a people who dwells apart. That's Israel. So unique. And will not be reckoned among the nations. That's Israel. Chosen. By the way, it's the same thing today. And it will be all the way to the end of the age. Israel is not reckoned among the nations. Israel is set apart. Israel is still, to this day, the chosen people and unique because God has chosen them. Not unique because they're better or higher or more righteous or more holy. No, they're unique because God has chosen them and they will not be reckoned among the nations. And you'll note that throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, you have the nations and you have Israel. Two kinds of people in the Bible, Gentiles and Jews. Until you get to the New Testament, when you have a third kind of person, and that is a Christian, who is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. So, here we are, the chosen ones, the unique people. Verse 10, Balaam continues, who can count the dust of Jacob? Or number the fourth part of Israel. Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have actually blessed them. And he replied, Must I not be careful to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Again, Yahweh. Verse 13, Then Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from where you may see them, although you will only see the extreme end of them, and you will not see all of them, and curse them for me from there. So we're going to change location. Maybe that'll make a difference. So he took him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah, Mount Pisgah. And he built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balak is worshiping all the different gods. And he said to Balak, or Balaam is, and he said to Balak, stand here beside your burnt offering while I myself meet the Lord over there. And then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth. There it is again. Puts a word in his mouth and says, return to Balak and thus you shall speak. And he came to him. And behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering and the leaders of Moab with him. And Balak said to him, what has the Lord spoken? 
And then he took up his discourse, second discourse now of Balaam. Arise, O Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Sound familiar? I love that verse. How remarkable that the skeevy little seer is the one who spoke this amazing and absolute truth that God is truth. Behold, verse 20, I have received a command to bless. When he has blessed, then I cannot revoke it. I I can't turn this back. I can't stop it. When he is blessed. Verse 21, has he not observed, or he has not observed misfortune in Jacob. Nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. Okay, stop there just for a minute. Amazing. To, To attempt to curse who or what God has called blessed is a serious miscalculation. This is the error of Balaam. You cannot curse what God has blessed. He tries. He's going to try several times here. Try to bring a curse, and nothing but blessing pours out of his mouth. He can't even help himself. But note this in verse 21. He has not observed misfortune in Jacob. The word misfortune is literally iniquity. Nor has he seen trouble, that is, grievances, in Israel. And that sounds like he's saying God winks at Israel's sin. Israel has sinned big time. I mean, remember what we've seen. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We have seen major rebellions, and absolutely there's been sin, and there's been sacrifice after sacrifice to cover them for their sin. And how can he say this, that God has not observed iniquity in Jacob or seen grievances in Israel? How's that possible? Balaam is prophesying that their, even their sin cannot and will not repeal, revoke, or rescind God's grace. Yeah, they're sinning, but God is covering that sin. Why? He's chosen them. Why? You can't cancel God's covenant. Note that, because I'm going to say it again. And again and again, you can't cancel God's covenant, and these are his covenant people. And I'm not talking about the Mosaic covenant. I'm talking about the Abrahamic covenant, which is unconditional. God said, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. I'll make your name great in all the world, Abraham. And all the nations will be blessed through you. That's God's promise. That's not Abraham's promise. You remember that that then in in Genesis uh, 15, Abraham literally spreads his sacrifices apart and, and lays out a path to walk with God and then he falls asleep and God walks the path. God makes the covenant. Abraham doesn't. Abraham's just there as the recipient. It's unconditional. And the Lord makes an unconditional covenant with Abraham through Isaac and then through Jacob reconfirmed, unconditional, ultimately to bless them because he has chosen them and because he is God. Romans eleven twenty seven, Paul writes, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You can't cancel God's covenant. Now today, 
the leadership of Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah, the United Nations, even the squad would all like to see it canceled. Leadership in America, this is what's shocking to me in this age, and I know I've talked about it recently, but I am blown away that there are people in our government who want to cancel out Israel, who think that they can overturn the covenant that God has made with his chosen people. It ain't going to happen. I know some are concerned today, and, and we've seen, you know, Netanyahu is out. Looks like a whole new government is kind of a left-leaning government in Israel, and who knows with that, and, and with our current government, what's going to happen with Israel? I'll tell you what's going to happen with Israel. God's got them. He's always had them. He will continue to have them. He will see them through to the very end of the age and beyond. Now, read on. The Lord, his God, is with him, verse 21 continues, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them like the horns of a wild ox. In other words, get out of his way. For there is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. This is Balaam speaking. At the proper time it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel what God has done. Behold, a people rises, note this, like a lioness, and as a lion it lifts itself, it will not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. And then Balak said to Balaam, do not curse them at all or, 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 or bless them at all. What are you doing, man? And Balaam replied to Balak, did I not tell you whatever the Lord speaks that, that I must do? I can't help it. This is what God's told me to say. I can't do other. And Balak said to Balaam, please come. I will take you to another place, and perhaps it will be agreeable with God that you curse them for me there. Wow, two messianic prophecies ring out of this second uh, statement, the second discourse of Balaam. First of all, there in verse 21, you heard it go by. The shout of a king is among them. The shout of a king 1 Thessalonians 4.16 tells us the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and then goes on to describe the rapture. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, John says, after these things I looked and behold a door opened in heaven and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking to me said, come up here, I'll show you what must take place after these things. The shout of a king. We will hear the voice of Jesus shout, come up here. But also note in verse 24, he says, as a lion, it lifts itself. Got to go back to old Jacob and his prophecy on his deathbed. Genesis 49, verse 9, he couches. He lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? Speaking of Messiah, Jesus. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. Remember the whole scroll scenario, and if you don't know it, listen to the Revelation study. But John's there, and they have a scroll, and, and no one can figure out how to open it up and, and release the scroll, and, and he's weeping. It's, it's this horrible situation. He just knows in his heart, this is bad. And then one of the elders says, hey, John, who's able to open the scroll? I don't know, you know. And the elder says, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to break the seals and open the scroll. And you remember what John says? I looked and I saw him as a lamb slain. <laughs> what? This is the lion of Judah. Yeah, and he looks like the little lamb slain, the Arneon. And it's Jesus. And Jesus is the lion. And even back then among the people, the sense of the lion lifting itself up. 
But the error of Balaam and the world is still to this very day to try to cancel or curse that which God has blessed by covenant. And they, they can't do it. His one-way, unilateral, unconditional covenant. He has one with you. In Jesus, there is a covenant secure. And the devil will try to tell you otherwise, try to undermine your faith. He'll say, look at yourself. And you'll look at yourself and go, oh, I'm not doing so well. And God will say, look at me. Look at me. Jesus will say, fix your eyes on me. And when we do that, we're like, oh, salvation. Look at myself. Ooh, look at Jesus, salvation. And that's the key. Keep your eyes on him because the devil and the world will say he can't keep covenant. And they will try to curse and they'll try to cause you to think, I, 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 maybe I'm not, you're not good enough. Neither am I. But Jesus is. Verse 28. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the wasteland or the, the plains there of Moab. And Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars for me here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me here. Balak did just as Balaam had said and offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. Chapter 24, verse 1. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek omens. That is, he didn't take the entrails or the heart or some of the insides of the animals and go out and go, hmm, whoa, whoa. This time, he set his face toward the wilderness and Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. So now, now they're in a different place. They're up on top of Mount Peor. And from Mount Peor, he's not just seeing a little section of Israel or a part of Israel. He sees the whole camp. And I love this verse 2 says, the Spirit of God came upon him. That's different. In the first two times, God put a word in his mouth and he had to speak exactly as God told him. But now the Holy Spirit get that, of the living God is upon this skeevy little seer. God can't do that, can he? Well, he just did. How do you explain that? I don't. I just say he did. And he took up his discourse, third discourse, and he said, verse 3, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, as if he's saying, I'm beginning to see. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and sees the vision of the Almighty, that is El Shaddai, it's a very Jewish term for God, falling down yet having his eyes uncovered. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel? I don't want to get ahead of myself. Pause right there just for a second. On the top, as he's, before he even gives this discourse, on the top of Mount Peor, there's something up there you need to be aware of. There's a temple. And the temple was to the storm god, whose name was, again, Baal. Baal is the storm god. Pagan belief, and this is important to know as we go forward with our studies, that what pagan belief was that Baal controlled all the elements. So he was kind of like the big god over the elements and, and the winds and the rains and the land. And he was responsible to bring the rains and the fertility to the land. So understand that for an agrarian people like Israel as they come into the land and like the Canaanites who are there, where it's, it's all about planting and tilling and, and sowing seed and all of that, for that kind of people, the temptation is to turn to Baal. Have a dry season? Sacrifice to Baal. 
Things not going well in the vineyard? Sacrifice to Baal. Fertility lacking in the home? Sacrifice to Baal. The Baal worship was not just about sacrifice. Oh, there were sacrifices, and some of them brutal. But they also believed that the way Baal blessed, or Baal blessed with fertility, was that Baal himself had sexual relations with his consort. And through that sexual communion between the two of them, then the fertility would flow out to the people. It's kind of gross. It was a very, very, very sexual um, kind of a, a, a belief system. And they believed that when, when Baal and his consort came together and they had sex, that from that, well, then women in the region would become pregnant and babies would be born to them and animals would produce and crops would bear fruit. And so what they did was they emulated Baal and his consort. They went to the temple prostitute. And the men would go to the temple prostitute. This is so important to understand. And they would then have relations with the temple prostitute to get the blessing of Baal by imitating what Baal and his consort did. His consort's name was Ashtaroth or Asherah. And you'll see that name listed throughout. You'll hear about Asherah poles. And so this is that combination of Baal and Asherah together that these pagans believed in. And there on Mount Peor, at the beginning of this chapter, on Mount Peor, there's a temple to Baal. And at Baal Peor, Balaam will share with Balak number three. So we've seen the way of Balaam is grieved. We, we understand that the error of Balaam is trying to curse that which God has blessed. And now number three, the teaching of Balaam, which we really won't get into tonight at all. But I'll tell you what it is. You get to know ahead of time before Sunday. The teaching of Balaam, moral compromise. Moral compromise. And that teaching of moral compromise, something we don't see in these uh, discourses, in these oracles of Balaam, that moral compromise is what he's going to tell Balak on the side, and it will cause the great problem that we're going to see in chapter 25, not tonight, but Sunday. That moral compromise is going to finally bring cursing into Israel. It's going to take Israel down several notches. Revelation 2.14, listen to this. Jesus said, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching, here's the teaching of Balaam, teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of sexual immorality. And that teaching plays out in Numbers 25 in a graphic TVMA teaching that is going to drop this Sunday morning on Bridge Flicks. So you might want to check that out. Just let that sink into you. It's a TVMA. We're going to be watching it Sunday morning. Bridge Flicks. I was really hoping for more of a response to that. Well, I appreciate that. Fired. Um, so... All right, so back to it. Clearly that didn't land, but that's okay. It's okay. Lord, may your word land even if mine doesn't. So Balaam now is going to attempt one more curse in this discourse and picking up where we left off. I'm going to pick it up in verse 3 again. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, an oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. 
like valleys that stretch out, like gardens beside the river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from his buckets, and his seed will be by many waters. And his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Higher than Agag? Wait a minute. What king is Agog? You remember King Agag? Do you remember that from Bible stories, anyone? King Agag is going to show up. He, he's not even alive at this time. He's going to show up in 1 Samuel 15 as a real problem for King Saul and the Israelites. King Agag. But I don't think this is talking about him. I mean, it could be prophetically looking ahead, but, but the thing is, he's not born yet, and Agag himself really wasn't that great. So to say that this king is going to be greater than Agag is like, okay, well, that's like saying the next president is going to be greater than Biden. I don't think it's really <laughs> going to land. Anyway, we're really talking about, <laughs> we're talking about a title, not a name. And the title Agag means, watch this, I will overtop. I will overtop. It's another way of saying he says, uh, his king, Israel's king, shall be higher than I will overtop. We might say higher than the highest king, or we might say king of kings. He will be king of kings. He'll be above all the others. And in this context, note this too. Balaam talks about, verse 6, valleys, gardens, aloes, cedars by waters, waters flowing, his seed by many waters, which is interesting because his seed already, it was proven that he couldn't be drowned in the Red Sea. And now his seed's going to be by, by many waters greater. His king is going to be greater than Agag. My friends, these verses describe the Messianic kingdom. This is looking way ahead. This is not looking to the kingdom of Saul or David or the kings of Israel. This is going all the way to Messiah's kingdom. How do you know? Just listen to this description. This is over in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. Isaiah 35, verse 6 says, Waters will break forth in the wilderness, streams in the Arabah. A scorched land will become a pool, thirsty ground, springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes, which happens when water is plentiful. So we're talking about valleys, gardens, aloes, cedars, waters that flow. This prophecy of, of Balaam, is looking ahead to the messianic kingdom over which a king higher than all the others will reign. Fantastic. And verse 8 continuing, God brings him out of Egypt, that is Israel. He is for him, and he repeats this, like the horns of the wild ox. He will devour the nations who are his adversaries. He will crush their bones in pieces and shatter them with his arrows. Verse 9, I love this. He couches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him? Blessed is everyone who blesses you and cursed is everyone who curses you. And we're right back to you can't cancel God's covenant. So almost a word for word there in verse 9, a word for word quote of old Jacob. Again, back in Genesis 49, 9. He couches like a lion. This is now over 400 years after Jacob died. And Balaam knows this word. 
Now it's possible as a seer that he was studied, and yet what's interesting to me is though Jacob spoke those words 400 years earlier, Moses had not even yet written those words, and yet Balaam speaks them. Why? The same spirit who was on Jacob is now on Balaam. So he's speaking the same word, the same beautiful, he couches, he lies down as a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. How does he know? Back in verse 2, the spirit of God came upon him. So he is speaking by the Holy Spirit. And even a greedy, seedy Balaam can't mess this up. Verse 10, then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. And he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. Therefore, and you, I mean, Balak is just fuming. Therefore, flee to your place now. I said, I would honor you greatly, but behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. I'm not paying you a dime. Flee to your place, he said. It's a threatening euphemism. We might not recognize that, but in the Hebrew, he's saying, go down to your grave. Go off and die. You're getting nothing from me. Same phrase is used one other time. Not in Hebrew, but in Greek. But if you compare the two languages, it's the exact same phrase. He says, Flee to your own place now. And the other time that it's used is when Peter and the disciples are praying for a new apostle and they say, Acts 1.25, to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas has turned aside to go to his own place. Because he followed the error, the way, you know, even the teaching of Balaam Judas just follows that same pattern and you've got Balaam and you've got Judas and you've got peas in a pod sharing the way, sharing the error and they have a common final place to which they go. By contrast, there's only one way to the Father, right? I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father but through me. Verse 12, so Balaam said to Balak, did I not tell your messengers whom you had sent to me, saying, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything contrary to the command of the Lord, either good or bad, of my own accord. Now he's kind of turning it back around. It really was hint, hint, wink, wink the first time, but now he's using it as an excuse. Well, I could not, even if you paid me everything, I couldn't have done it. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. Verse 14, and now behold, I'm going to my people. Come. I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. Another phrase you got to know, the days to come, is another exact phrase of old Jacob. It's the same phrase that Jacob used when he blessed his sons, Genesis 49, verse 1, when he said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Literally, the end of days. Jacob's prophecy in Genesis 49 was a prophecy of the end of days, an end times, latter days prophecy for Israel, not immediate, but here at the end. And so here Balaam says the same thing. I'm going to advise you what this people will do your people in the end of days. This, my friends, is a last days prophecy, so hang in there. Watch this, verse 15. He took up this discourse, this is the fourth one, and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. 
That's the second time he said that. You know what that seems to imply to us? It's a formula that the peddler prophet uses. That he's not really feeling or thinking these words, but it's kind of formulaic, and it makes him look good and impressive and, and falsely humble at the same time. And he's pouring out these words, these oracles, as one who, whoa, I know the knowledge, and I, I have a vision of the Almighty. And listen, it's not knowledge, it's not even vision that makes a man or a woman of God. That's not what gets you there. It's faith. It is just faith. It's trusting him. It's not how much you know, and you know me, I'm all about the word. And I'm all about the knowledge of God and the wonders of God and pray for the wisdom of God. And we want to seek his vision for our lives. But my friends, it is not knowledge and vision. It's faith. I trust him. It's simplicity, not complexity, that gets the job done in the name of the Lord. Verse 17. Oh, I love this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. He's talking about the far, far future. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. And the sons of Sheth, that literally means tumult. I'm going to tear down the sons of tumult, sons of violence, sons of, of anarchy. That is not the way of God. This prophecy, verse 17, a star shall come forth from Jacob. This was partially fulfilled 400 years later in David. In David, King David. The complete fulfillment was and is to come. That is partially fulfilled in David, this, this star coming forth from Jacob, this scepter rising from Israel. The, the kingdom of, of David would be a partial fulfillment. You'd see that happening 400 years later. Then a thousand years after that, a star. A star. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. Matthew chapter 2 verse 2. And it's very likely those stargazers, the magi from the east, they probably knew this verse very well. Numbers 24, 17. A star shall come forth from Jacob. Where, where is this star? We've been looking for it. We've come to worship him. These same magi who came following the star, what we call the star of Bethlehem, may also have been trainees of Daniel because they came from the east, from the region of Babylon, where we know Daniel was. Daniel was head of the school of the prophets there in Babylon. So it's a really interesting connection that we even see that perhaps they learned and, and understood this all the way back to Numbers 24, 17 because Daniel taught them. And so now they come looking for the fulfillment of this prophecy. But it's bigger yet. Partially fulfilled in David, partially fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus, but this is a far-flung prophecy that hints of the coming king. Because more than the star of Bethlehem heralding the first coming, listen, Jesus is the star. He's the star. He's the star above the stars. I mean, he is the celebrity. He's the only one. And in the revelation of his return, Jesus says, I'm the root and descendant of David. I am the bright and morning star. I see him. A star who comes forth from Jacob. It's not just the star of Bethlehem. It is Jesus Christ himself. And he says, a scepter shall rise from Israel. Many scepters did. Many would. Saul would be the first king, the people's choice. 
and then David, God's choice, would rise, and then, of course, Solomon, and then another 39 kings would rule and reign over Judah and, and Israel as they divided. But this scepter, a scepter shall rise from Israel, again, is the one and only scepter from Jacob who will rule over all for all eternity. He rises from Jacob. He's going to rule over the entire world. He will rule over all eternity. Genesis 49.10, again, Jacob said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Note this, not just his first coming, but his second coming, because he says, To him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. That didn't happen in Jesus' first coming but it will happen in a second. So these are extraordinary prophecies of the end of days. Watch this in verse 18. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies also will be a possession while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion. Again, we're talking about Jesus, Messiah. And will destroy the remnant from the city. Note again, remember this, Edom is... The line of who? Esau. Esau. So we're talking about a people now. The Edomites are going to, they no longer exist as a nation. There is no nation of Edom in the world. And actually they went down quite a ways, quite a while ago, B.C. Uh, Edom went down. Although remember, and I've told you this, Jordanians today still view themselves as either Ammonites, Moabites, or Edomites. They're called Jordan. Well, that happened after the Second World War. When the land was divided, the two-state solution, right? Israel, a land for the Jews, and Transjordan, a land for the Arabs. But they don't consider themselves Jordanians, but Ammonites, Moabites, and Edomites. After Edom went down, after the nation was destroyed and dispersed, the people of that heritage did remain. That bloodline of Esau is still in the world today. In fact, back at that time, they became known as, maybe you've heard this name, Idumeans, the Idumeans. Probably the most famous Idumean, most notorious, was Herod the Great. He was an Idumean, a, kind of a crossbreed of Edomite and had some Jewish blood in him, and, and the Jews hated him. They did not like Herod at all, and of course it was Herod who tried to destroy Jesus at his birth. Understand, this is a last day's prophecy, because the blood of Esau the blood of Edom still flows in a people who hate Israel. Now, don't misunderstand me. I always want to clarify this. I'm not talking about all Arabs hate Israel. As I said last week, we have Arab brothers and sisters in Christ who love Israel. I'm talking about those who have set themselves against Israel that represent this prophecy of, of Edom being taken out. Those who set themselves violently against Israel, I'm talking about Hamas, the Palestinian Authority, Hezbollah, and multiple end times prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures have been written warning against these ancient peoples. You can see it in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel talks about it, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, all the way through. You keep hearing about the Edomites and even the Moabites and how God set against them if and because they're set against his people Israel. But I got, you, I got to have you note this. And we mentioned Jordan and those three tribes that, that are represented there. Listen to what God does at the very end of the age. Daniel chapter 11, verse 41. Antichrist will enter the beautiful land, that is Israel, 
and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Why? Because during that time of war and tribulation, those three nations will stand for Israel. And God will bless those who bless his people. He keeps a covenant. God, you cannot cancel God's covenant. These will give aid to Israel. And we can read about that in, in Isaiah. In fact, if you want to do your own study, Isaiah 16 is a great example of how they come to the aid of fleeing Israel. And God will remember them and will rescue them out of the hands of, of the Antichrist. Why? I will bless those who bless you. The, curse, the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Verse 20. And he looked at Amalek, the Amalekites, and he took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, which may imply or be speaking to the fact that Amalek was the first to attack Israel in the wilderness, the first to try to curse Israel as they came back toward the land. Remember the Amalekites trying to pick off the Israelis who were weak at the back part of the, of the march? Yeah, they were first, but his end shall be destruction. And he looked at the Kenite. That is now the fifth and final discourse of Balaam. He looked at the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, your dwelling place is enduring and your nest is set in the cliff. Nevertheless, Cain will be consumed. How long will Ashur keep you captive? What in the world does that mean? Okay, the Kenite, the, the Kenite were a people, Cain, K-A-I-N, was the leader of the Kenites and they were a people aligned with the Midianites which is down in the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia today. And this people fell to another people. How long will Ashur keep you captive? This happened in 722 B.C. Do you remember who came and attacked Israel in 722, Bible students? It was Assyria. Ashur is the Assyrians. And the Assyrians came down and not only wiped out Israel, but came around. They didn't get into Judah. God was still holding them back there, but they came around and they got the Kenites. And many of the peoples there were conquered by mighty Assyria or Ashur. So that happened in 722 BC. Then 20, verse 23, then he took up his discourse and said, alas, who can live except God has ordained it? But ships shall come from the coast of Katim and they shall afflict Ashur, the Assyrians, and will afflict Eber, so they will also come to destruction. That is, these who come from the coast of Katim will also come to destruction. Who comes from the coast of Katim? Katim is Cyprus. This is a maritime people who sailed across. And we're probably talking about the Philistines. So they came across, and they were a pain in the neck of the Assyrians, and they were a problem from, for Eber. And Eber may be the Hebrews, maybe a reference to the Jewish people there. If you're jotting all this down really fast. But the Philistines from the coast, they sail across and they ultimately are going to be wiped out themselves, so they will come to destruction. Verse 25 Then Balaam arose and Balak, uh, Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. And it is a profound prophecy, several of them, from a really slimy dude. Before we stop tonight, I want to ask you one thing. I want you to think about one thing. And I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about this before, but reading through this, it struck me. All of this is taking place up on the mountains of Moab. 
Mount Peor, Mount Pisgah. They're up there on the top. They're looking down. And, and, and part of the time, they're, they're looking down, and they can see part of Israel from this vantage point. So they go over here. Well, I can see part of Israel trying to curse, trying to take them down. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. And then finally, they end up at Baal Peor. And at Baal Peor, they look down, and, and they can see the entirety of Israel. Here's the question. Did Israel, down on the plains of Moab, did they know what was going on? Did they realize at this time that Balaam was up on the mountains above them with Balak and the leaders of Moab trying to curse them? They're down there camping out, you know, making s'mores. <laughs> Clueless. Clueless, listen, to the spiritual battle that was raging right above them. The attempt to curse, the attempt to take them out. You know what? It's interesting. Job didn't know. All he knew was what was falling apart around him, but he didn't know there was a satanic challenge to God's faithfulness in, in all of his afflictions. He had no idea. He was just down here experiencing it, down in the valley, down in the plains, down in his life. Daniel didn't know. He had no idea that as he prayed and he, and he sweated it out and he was sick on his couch three weeks long, he's just praying and waiting and waiting and praying, and he didn't know the reason the angel Gabriel was, was delayed from answering his prayer was because Gabriel and Michael are duking it out with the prince of Persia in the spiritual realm. It's awesome. They're having a, a mighty battle going on, and, and Daniel doesn't know that. He's just praying and not getting an answer. He doesn't know what's going on up here until Gabriel shows up and explains it. And then I love this. Gabriel says, by the way, I got to go back and fight the Prince of Persia, so check you later. And off he goes. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul says, Ephesians 6, 13, therefore take up the full armor of God so you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. You may not have a clue what's going on around you. You don't know about the spiritual battle that is raging right over your heads, right up above in the mountains above you. And that's what's happening. It's marvelous during these chapters. And we're focused on Balaam and the donkey because that's just so weird and the prophecies he's throwing out. And we're just captivated by all this stuff up in the mountains. Meanwhile, Israel's just down there, blessed, waiting on the Lord. What's the next step, Lord? In fact, Moses hearing God say, don't worry about Moab, I got it. <laughs> Moab's up there trying to curse him. And they're fine. Psalm one. 21, I will lift my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? And I've told you before, that is not saying I'm looking to the mountains for help. It's saying I'm looking to the mountains and they are imposing. And they are dark and they are threatening. And when I look up there, I'm a little worried. Where am I going to get help against these mountainous forces that are rising against me? Verse 2, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth and he will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, and the moon, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. It's a psalm to Israel about God who keeps him. Five times in that psalm it says God will keep you. Five times the number of grace. 
I will keep you. I will keep you. I will keep you. Why? Because when God makes a covenant, he keeps it. He keeps it. You cannot cancel God's covenants. Why was Israel so protected? Because, do you recall? Back in Numbers chapter 2, all the way back at the beginning, you remember what happened there? They were told how to camp. The layout of the four camps of Israel. And in chapter 24, verse 2, Balaam lifted up his eyes, saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. He saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. What does that mean? Laid out. As described around the tabernacle, and you Bible students, you know this. I'm going to say it anyway because I'm up here and you're just listening. <laughs> on the west side, the camp of Ephraim was the smallest. So here on the west, small. And then on the north and the south camps of Dan and Reuben, about equal in size, coming out from the tabernacle. That's how they camped, square. And then at the bottom, the camp of Judah, which stretched out the furthest. And what, what Balaam looked at as he's trying to curse Israel was a massive cross. The Bible tells us clearly that we cannot cancel the, the promises of God. You can't curse what God has blessed. And to secure that into eternity, last verse, at the cross, as Jake told us tonight at communion, it was at the cross, Jesus took it all. He took the curse on himself that can never be canceled again. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Deuteronomy 21, 23, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit. How? Through faith. Through faith. You believe in the covenant-keeping God. You trust him, and he will keep you. And Father, we thank you for your word. A lot to, to digest tonight um, as you bring out all these teachings, this crazy prophet who obviously was in it for himself and yet he could not get in your way. Moab couldn't set themselves against your people. And you accomplished exactly what you set out to accomplish. Father, we are so amazed by you and we are so thankful for the cross. Thankful, Jesus, that you canceled out sin on the cross of Calvary. And that because of that, we now enter into the new covenant of your blood to be with you forever. Thank you for your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen.